And to all my friends here in America, happy 4th of July weekend. Our nation's birthday is, is tomorrow. Uh, we are, are joined today again with, by Martin Witkowski, the, you know, the finest import from Poland in, in the history of the world. And, of course, Joe Cardinal. And uh, welcome, guys. Uh, hope uh, you know, they have a lot to talk about. So today is kind of a uh, bittersweet for me because it was five years ago this weekend, 4th of July weekend, that my friend Kevin, the best, got killed in the plane crash, which ergo caused the loss of my gym. And uh, he actually technically died July 1st. So this is always, for me, going to be a bittersweet, just as Christmas is bittersweet for me losing my father around Christmas, my grandmother, my dog, you know, holidays, it just seems for me are not the best. But um, anyway, uh, I don't see Martin. I know he's on, but I can't see his face. But nobody cares about that because we got Joe Cardinal's face. And that's why everybody tunes in. Joe, what's up? Hey, what's going on? I heard you had a big seminar recently. Yeah, and there's some. Let's talk about that a moment before we before I kind of turn it over to you guys to talk about your happy wandering. Um, the seminar was a great success at North Central College in Naperville, and the good news is that I've got a gig now there once a month, every third Sunday of the month. Uh, and if something should happen, we have an alternate no- location, and what it's going to be now is a uh, compendium where I can finally again do my thing and and teach a structured seminar, you know, or not a seminar so much as a uh, continuing education on learning as much as my, of my system as possible, total complete system, and hopefully this will continue on and on and on for forever. And I'm hoping to also score one or two more seminars per month either through this with these group or, you know, maybe at Josh Bassini's place or Jason Bender's place uh, or maybe another gym um, in, in, in the Chicagoland area, that would be terrific. So it's going to be every third Sunday of, of the month, 10 starts at 10 AM. So Joe will put again, the, the, the address and, and I would suggest contacting Chuck May, as he's the man um, that is behind this. And I met a couple of wonderful police officers there. One may be stopping at my house later today. Um, and there were lay people as well, civilians. A lady was present too. So this is open for everybody. This is not just relegated to these people. We're trying to get as many 
signups as we can. Uh, it's in a gigantic North Central College wrestling room. You can look it up on the internet, and you can see they, you know, they they've had some All Americans out of there. Uh, no air conditioning. It's a wrestling room, so it'll be fun in the winter, though. But yeah, it it's warm, but it's a nice facility. Ample parking for everyone. Free parking. Uh, and yeah, just a hell of a good group of a, a big variety of people. And I'm I'm hoping for a, a bigger turnouts every week, uh, every month. And uh, yeah, so you missed out. You and Martin, you both were traveling. And let's let's hear all about it. I don't know which one of you guys wants to go first. You know, it's all about you, Joe, always. So you know. true, true. I mean, that's what everybody wants to hear. But I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to Martin would be a tough act to follow. So uh, but before I go on, I just want to kind of mention that. So you mentioned Chuck May's name, but that's through uh, DuPage Krav Maga. So you can also look up the Krav Maga, DuPage Krav Maga. They may have something on their website as well. Like I said, I'll put what links we get uh, down below. Um, yeah, and ultimately, a, if there would ever be a conflict confliction with um, North Central College, we will use the Krav Maga uh, facility. Um, but it's that's just minor details. But yeah, anyway, yeah. So thanks, but. We got to hear about you and in your wilderness or wherever the hell you went. Yeah, well, so um, last summer we did a podcast when I went with my buddy Dwayne to uh, the Tom Brown Tracker School in New Jersey. And so I went back. Um, so they have kind of like a main line of courses. They have multi, they have different, um, what do you call it? Like, um, areas of study that they, but their, their core curriculum, you know, they have two uh, primitive survival skills classes, which Dwayne and I did last year. And now uh, this year I'm doing two more classes, but they're not back to back. So uh, I'll actually be heading back there next weekend, uh, which is in some ways kind of a relief because um, for this next one, I'm going to need, need to be rested up a little bit, but this previous week. So the way that they, they structure their core curriculum, you have two weeks of primitive survival skills. So you're doing like uh, we, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but it was like, you know, building shelters, building fires, finding water, things like that. They delve into a lot more. Again, one of kind of the, um, uh, you know, things that this school is known for is tracking. You know, Tom Brown is, he's he, like, since the 70s, he's been one of the big guys in tracking nationwide and has trained a bunch of trackers. So each class, they'll give you a little bit of tracking skills and kind of introduce you to the different patterns that animals make and the different, you know, things you'll see in, in uh, footsteps. But this week was a focus on tracking. So you spent a lot of time kind of being guided by their top instructors on seeing tracks in very difficult terrain. So in this one, it was a lot less survival skill oriented, although they they kind of, you know, uh, make the case that tracking is is definitely a part of your survival skills. So if you're going to, you know, lay animal traps or hunt or do things for food, you've got to kind of understand and be tuned in to what, what the animal movement is in your area. Uh, and so that's a big part of it. But they're also kind of... Um, they're kind of training people to be naturalists, if you will, to be more, you're using these skills first, obviously foremost, just to be able to survive. Um, but also, I mean, these things, their ethic is that you're kind of getting closer to nature too, which is just inevitable. If you're learning what these different trees are, what these different animals are, 
you're, you're becoming more in tune with the natural environment around you, which is, uh, you know, a big bonus for, you know, even like you yourself, Tony, you're a city boy, but now that you would kind of appreciate, you know, you've got kind of the rural lifestyle going where you like being out on your porch and just anything like even small things like uh, we spent a lot of time, they had an expert there. Uh, this was kind of a big bonus for me. There was a guy. So one of Tom Brown's first students was a guy named John Young. Um, and it's one of the thing that's kind of very interesting um, about all these different people who've trained with Tom is that they'll focus on different aspects because there's so many different dimensions to outdoor skills. So uh, if people go back in our podcast, we had uh, Joe Lau on. You probably remember him. He was a guy who took it and focused specifically on friction fire. And his whole thing is, you know, all over the world, what are the different primitive ways of making fire and what different woods does it work with? And, you know, what temp temperature conditions and all kinds of other things. And so he's really made that his life works to kind of preserve that and disseminate that knowledge. Um, you know, we've had guys who focus in on like primitive cooking. Maybe they had a background before they came to the school of being a chef. And then they said, well, let me figure out how this would work in a primitive scenario. But anyways, John Young, um, the thing he's probably most famous for, and he was, I think, believe he was Tom's very first student, um, uh, is bird language, something that he calls. And it's really learning about bird calls and paying attention to the birds and the pattern of bird calls in your environment and staying tuned into that. Um, you know, I think we've all seen things, are, the idea that you can tell when an animal's alarming, you know, as opposed to doing its bird song, and that may indicate something's up in your environment whether it's a, you know, a stray cat or a fox on the prowl, um, you know, but there is a whole pattern. There's kind of a flow throughout the day. And it's very true. You can, I mean, I think most people will notice that before the sun rises, there's a large peak of bird sounds. So you'll see all like, you know, right now the sun's coming up pretty early in my, you know, so it's like about 520 or so in the morning, the sun is actually rising. So right at about four in the morning or so, you'll start to hear the bird noise get really loud. And there's a reason for that. The reason why they're, they kind of time it for that is that they do all their activity in the morning and they kind of, it kind of shuts off. Not, it never completely quiets down. There's all kinds of little chatter, but the, the big cacophony of bird sound happens then. And it, it drops off because once the sun is up, then all the predatory birds can see clearly. They can navigate through the branches once the sun is up and things. And so now they have to start changing their behavior. And so, I mean, I'm kind of going in depth about this, but it was really fascinating to me learning about this and uh, kind of paying attention to the, the cycle of bird and animal noises in your environment and trying to tune into that. Um, you know, and just, there are certain birds that you'll see sitting at the top of trees or, you know, maybe on light poles and, and they're actually playing a role of sentinel and they're keeping an eye out for uh, Cooper's hawks. Usually in North America, I think the main predator for songbirds is Cooper hawks. And it's just really fascinating talking about how their uh, their behavior works and what you can kind of pick up from that. So again, a, a big focus of this week was what they call tracking and awareness. So they want you to work on your tracking skills, which is kind of a form of awareness of your environment, but also other skills like listening to the natural environment around you and, and things of that nature, um, no pun intended. So um, yeah, it was cool. And we had people from all over the world again at the class. There was probably about 50 of us. Um, my group was primarily made up of people from Germany and they were super cool, super into it. Uh, a lot of them had been there for three weeks straight because they usually, uh, put the survival classes first and then they'd run this one as the third week. 
Uh, last year, Dwayne and I only did two weeks, so we didn't we didn't stay for that third week. So I went back and knocked that out. Um, we also did some really cool, uh, I call uh, almost like nature games at night. Uh, things that would involve almost kind of like kind of like capture the flag and camouflage type things, just kind of going out. And I've actually posted a picture of myself on Instagram, camoed up. Um, with mud, charcoal, and sawdust, and things like that. So, I mean, it is kind of like a summer camp for adults in a lot of ways, but a lot of like high-end lectures, and you learn a lot of things. So, um, anyways, that's just kind of like an overview of what happened that week. So, um, it was a great hey, time. Joe, um, I have one question about that. So, you say this is in New Jersey, and like, you know, when I think of New Jersey, <laughs> I don't really think wilderness. Can you give us a little bit of a uh, understanding of what the wilderness that you get deployed into really looks like, like what, what type of terrain it is, because, you know, in New Jersey, I, I think Newark and like uh, basically urban jungle. Uh, yeah, not, it is not Camden. Um, no, exactly. It's funny. Whenever I tell people, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to an outdoor school, survival skills. And they're like, oh, where are you going? They think it's some national park or something. Oh no, I'm going to New Jersey, you know, and everybody does a double take. Uh, no one associates that with uh, outdoor, but I mean, every state has some. And like in this case, the um, it's the Pine Barrens National Forest there in New Jersey, where they have, uh, I don't know how many acres they have, but basically when you get off the main road, you spend at least 20, mon uh, 20 minutes driving into this wooded area, you know, that unpaved rough road. So you're, you know, you're bouncing up and down on, on in, in these um vans and trucks to get in there and you're very deep into the forest at that point and it's it's definitely a pine forest with kind of um uh almost like the soil is almost sandy um there's an area there that's swamp there's a, a cedar swamp that's not too far from there that's uh, really gorgeous so it, it is funny that in the midst of all kind of what you'd consider like urban decay you know kind of what the cliche of what everybody thinks new jersey is is kind of this epicenter for nat natural training so, um, but yeah, so you're, you're deep in the woods, pines. Um, yeah. And you're kind of just camping out in that area where they've kind of set up a school in the midst of there. How long are you going to be gone this next time? An another week. So this next week is considered their scout training. So I imagine this is going to be a lot more like, you know, late at night, capture the flag games, camouflaging, things like that, stalking through the woods. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, it's something well, I then maybe Martin and I can do the podcast together next weekend because we can't, you know, we got to. Yeah. All right. I know. Yeah. Ahead. I know the fans are always, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, you're next time you're there, time. next is come a week. Ask Tom Brown or whatever, if he trained Mike Hanak. Okay. Mike Hanak. Okay. Yeah. Because we I've talked about him with everybody that's been on the show from your, your uh, ex escapades. And so yeah, ask him, because I don't know who the hell, uh, Mike Kanak trained with. I, I thought he told me it was somebody out west. Hmm. Well, and, they, and they did run schools out west for a while too. So they used to have both coasts. So they originally. Well, I, but I could be wrong. But just just ask. Yeah. You sure, know, sure. My memory. This is twenty years ago, so I I can't recall shit. You know. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't surprise me yet because he's been he's been kind of like at least he's got to be he's got to be aware of Tom Brown. But um, but anyways, yeah. So that was my uh, my week in the woods. Well, I think Martin had has uh, a great, interesting little vacation. So why don't you tell us about your trip, Martino? Yeah, I went with my family uh, 
uh, back to Poland probably for the first time since COVID. I used to go pretty regularly every uh, uh, year or so because um, it's kind of an easy trip for me. You know, I know the language. I get around. I can. I usually stay at like a verbal with the family, so we, we buy groceries and we cut down the cost that way. Um, so this was the first time I went since 2019, and I went with my kids and with uh, uh, their grandparents, my parents. And like w- one of the observations uh, that I uh, was telling Tony about is that inflation is really everywhere. Like prices have gone up over there too. And this is, you know, boots on the ground observation because, like I said, I, I, I go to grocery stores and I don't just stay at hotels and prices at hotels might move at a different rate than prices, you know, at a local uh, Aldi or whatever you got. So the inflation is, is a global problem and people are very attuned to it over there, too. Everywhere you go, there is signs saying, you know, we're fighting inflation prices. This is this kind of a price and that kind of a price. So this is like a topic that's hotly contested everywhere. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, the, the reality is that inflation affects everybody. And I, I feel like the prices have just gone up all over the world. Um, just to give you like a, an example, like I usually uh, look at stuff uh, based on like price of beer or something like that. And that, that effectively doubled since the last time I was there. So it's up. Uh, and the other observation I had was like air travel is a major pain in the ass. I, I, maybe, I don't know how uh, Joe got to New Jersey, uh, whether he flew or drove, but air travel, international or domestic, is just a mess. It is fundamentally understaffed, underfunded, I suppose, and generally difficult to get through. And I, I think one of the fears that everybody has is that with the pressure to push through so many passengers, some of the safety regulations will become more lax and there will be, you know, disasters because air travel is, is fraud. I mean, Tony, maybe you can you can talk about this, but um, the, the uh, plane crash that you mentioned that involved your friend Kevin, that's, you know, it's a slightly different beast because it's a, it's a private, private uh, uh, airplane. But it made the news when it happened. It was all over the news here in Chicago, and it was weather-related. And from from what I remember, yeah. And you know, in, in, in the commercial setting, weather is also driving a lot of this this um, stuff. Like you know, they'll cancel flights and they'll delay things and so forth. But there is like a fear that you know, with enough pressure, some of these uh, safety regulations will be overlooked and bad things will happen. So, you know, I, I don't recommend travel to, to people if they can avoid it, just because if it's crowded, it means that maybe there isn't as many eyes on the ball as there should be. Well, you know, one of the things, and this is, it kind of ties into what you just said, but I, I've, I've said this for years and years. Um, there's so much beauty around where you live, okay? Now, now I don't mean like three blocks away, but within, you know, there used to be a TV show in Cleveland when I was a kid on the news, and it was by a, uh, I don't know if you wouldn't want to call him a newscaster, but, you know, hired by the news. Um, Neil Zerker was his name. I don't know if he's still alive, 
but he had this, this segment called One Tank Trips, okay? Uh, while Cleveland gets a lot of bad reputation and the mistake by the lake and all of that, Cleveland is really known as the best location in the nation. That is really a, a very apropos uh, nickname because Cleveland is literally in such a beautiful spot that within one day you can get so many places, right? Niagara Falls, New York City, Philadelphia, Atlantic City, Washington, D.C., you know, blah, 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 Chicago, whatever. Um, and I told people, there's so much around you that you're not even aware of. For example, living here, the majority of folks have never been to Chicago. They know nothing about it. Well, what they think they know is, you know, totally misconstrued. So uh, even my friend Scott, Scott was to Chicago maybe a couple times before he got to know me. Now I've taken him to Chicago. We fell in love with it. So, yeah, I think at times it's it, it would behoove people to just wherever they live, draw a circle, like put your city in the center and draw like a 100 mile or 150 mile uh, radius and just pick out spots to go. You, you'd be probably surprised at how much fun and how much interest, interesting things uh, you can find. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't like traveling by air just because since 9-11 it's been a hassle with the TSA and taking your shoes off and all of that kind of jazz. And, um, and since Kevin's plane crash, I don't care if I ever fly again. I don't really want to fly again. Uh, I was uh, – we had flown to Cleveland – a couple months, uh, April, June, yeah, so like three months, two and a half months before his crash. I was the last successful flight, as you, you want to say, and we caught some weather going into Cleveland over Lake Erie. Uh, and we had to try to beat the weather coming back because we flew there and flew back the same day. This was when Kevin was uh, looking to get a GT40 built, uh, which is a – high-performance car, replica car, but he had an 1,150-horsepower motor he was going to put in it. Oh, my God. Anyway, I really don't have a reason to fly. Um, and, of course, with my mother, when I was taking care of my mother, I couldn't go anywhere. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in essence free to, to, to travel if I, you know, I would go for a business. You know, like if it were to teach a seminar, if they're going to fly me out and pay me substantially, I'll do it. But leisurely, you know, I, I'm just content, you know, going to the city, going to Chicago or taking another road trip to Cleveland, you know. To your point, it kind of goes yeah, back to, oh, go ahead. I'll just say. Sorry, like, no, I was going to say, like, the rest of my summer is basically going to be road trip because of how much uh, of a hassle it is. And, you know, just, just to uh, sum up what I was saying about the weather, like, um, you know, to your point, Tony, like with a private plane, you try to beat the weather with larger flights. They will do cancellations and they will, um, you know, postpone flights because of the weather. It's not because it's completely unsafe or impossible to do, but because it takes longer for them to process the planes on the ground because of bad weather. But, um, you know, there is a safety aspect involved in all of that. And, you know, I always wonder about uh, the pressure that these airlines will put on their workers to process all these flights and have less cancellations. 
uh, what they do right now is um, it's an interesting phenomenon is they do what they call hate pricing. Is they'll make the tickets so expensive as to discourage more passengers and they'll still make a bigger profit because of that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not impossible to see a situation where they would you know, sacrifice some of the safety aspects in order to meet their, their goals. And uh, I, I don't want to be in, uh, in that situation. I'd rather do road trips, like Tony was saying, and there is plenty to see. Well, on that note about the weather, so if there's any people who are into aviation, um, I want to clarify a few things here. When Kevin first, when I first met Kevin, um, he had a Cherokee Arrow single engine. From there, he graduated to a 310 and then a, a 401. And finally, he had a 421C, Cessna 421C. It's a pretty big uh, private plane, um, twin engine, eight-seater had a, you know, had a, what they call a potty in it, you know, like a little toilet, little, all of that. Um, and yeah, they were flying out of Waukegan where he kept his airplane and they were heading to Winnipeg for a, for a uh, fishing week long fishing trip. And yeah, there was weather. Uh, there appeared, appeared to be a break in the weather. Now I've been, I flew, I've flown everywhere with Kevin. So we've, we've done this countless times, but Apparently, what happened was there was a microburst, uh, and that sheared off the tail of the airplane. And as I was told, quote, it came down like a lawn dart. Uh, subsequently, I've talked to very experienced airline power, uh, pilots, and they all say, uh, hey, you fly as a pilot, you fly into a thunderstorm once, okay, meaning. You either never make it out of it or you learn don't fly in a thunderstorm. Uh, it, it's, and it's different with, with uh, airlines, of course, because the planes are you know, bigger, a little more uh, viable. But uh, the, the negative is you know, they can't just set down wherever they want to set down when you're in a large jet. Uh, but we st- I still don't know the exact details. Uh, apparently, there was loss of radio communication, and he went down in a small town called Phillips, Wisconsin. Matter of fact, they had to do the autopsy, I believe, in Minneapolis. Definitely was Minnesota, but so they were they were closer to they were heading up north. But when you're in the middle of the night and you can't see and you don't know, uh, we almost went down. We almost lost it, Kevin and I, in coming out of Mena, Arkansas. And we flew, we flew, this is back before he was instrument rated. We flew smack dab into a thunderstorm and we were in the mountains. And we're, I'm just lucky to be here. We thought for sure we were going down. We said our goodbyes to each other. Um, so, yeah, weather is, 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 uh, you, you don't want to, you can't beat mother nature. It's just not worth it. Uh, and I'll wrap it up by saying I was on a commercial airliner coming back from a seminar and the wing got struck by lightning and it literally sounded like a bomb went off. Okay, I mean, it shook everybody on the plane and whoever was sitting next to me was some some lady. She just started crying and holding on to me like she was my wife. You know, I, she was a total stranger, but she was she was scared shitless. She, she was in the middle seat. I was on the I always like to get the aisle seat because I'm a little bigger so I, I can stretch out some. But yeah, you know, when you go through that, and like I said, with Kevin, I've been I've been through tornadoes. We I have a picture somewhere, a snapshot of a. Uh, what do you call it? A funnel cloud. I mean, 
it kind of changes your perspective on flying, especially in bad weather. I, I'll take a pass. Yeah, I got burned one time recently coming home on an airplane. I didn't do it for this recent trip, but um, I had, I think, something like a 6 or 7 a.m. flight. Some god-awful early time, you know, just to save some money. And I was there two hours early, and the security line was so long. It stretched around the entire airport. This was in Colorado. It took us at least 90 minutes to get through that thing, probably more. And I, I ended up going through, and I ended up getting, I believe, either five or 10 minutes early to my gate, but they had already closed the door. See, I don't travel frequent enough. Probably every, people listening understand the mistake I made if they fly frequently. But apparently they told me that like, they once everybody's boarded, like the, the five minutes before is when they close the door and that's when you're supposed to be there. And I was really upset. I'm like, your ticket said, you know, whatever, 6.50, I'm here at 6:45, and they're like, "No, we closed everything down. Technically, you're late." So literally, you know, and I remember not running to the spot because I'm like, "Oh, I got time," you know, like, and it just really messed me up. But it was really frustrating. There's just so many things, and I know they got their protocols, and maybe they have to do what they have to do to keep things on time. But uh, it, it is often a big pain to fly for sure. And yeah, now it's just ridiculous with the cost of jet fuel and everything. There's no cheap tickets out there, so. Um, yeah, I, I definitely encourage car trips whenever you can. And kind of to the earlier point about the where Martin was saying, like, you know, what nature is there in New Jersey? It was the same thing as people's <laughs> impression of um, Cleveland. But you're not too far from uh, the Cuyahoga National Park, which is beautiful. I've been through there. Um, and even like there's little strips of nature throughout. Like I think there's that really beautiful is it Martin Luther King Drive. Yeah, it used to be Liberty Boulevard. When I was a kid, it's Martin Luther King since the 80s, I think. But gorgeous tree-lined, you know. I mean, yeah. we drove through that a couple of times, and it is. So people, you know, obviously, it's just like anything. When you get your impression from, you know, media sources, it's going to be filtered to whatever sells or whatever. But then, you know, you, you got to be careful because, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful places in and around the Cleveland Garden area. State. I've been to Jersey many times. It's the gar Garden State. is beautiful. I mean, America has... Well, America's a large country, okay? I remember a few years ago, the Europeans were like, you know, only 20% of Americans have passports or this or that or whatever. They don't get it. You know, you need a passport in Europe to, to go 100 miles sometimes, right? Depending on where you, where you live in your country. We don't. We have a vast, there's a lot of natural beauty in America, I mean, by far. But I try to tell people that, Chicago is a destination for world travelers. Uh, and like many of the students that come from my Tri-C program, they want to take in the sights of Chicago because it's a world-class city. And I find it appalling that you have people that live just this close to the city. I'm about an hour and a half, two hours, depending on where you want to go from Chicago, that just are dead set against going to the city. Uh, makes no sense to me. Uh, you know, everybody, I guess, I get it to each his own, but Chicago, you know, is a world-class city. It's absolutely beautiful. Cleveland's beautiful in a different way. It's not as dense. Um, it, it, was, it used to be more densely populated than Chicago because the square miles of, of the city proper is smaller. But the metropolitan area of Cleveland is, you know, a, akin to Chicago. Uh, 
Chicago's got the better downtown. That's the main thing about Chicago was their beautiful skyline. Uh, I believe it's the best in the world um, where New York is awesome, awesome. But Chicago is very beautiful. But Cleveland has more of a natural beauty, uh, more nature-oriented. Part of that, what you're talking about, Martin Luther King um, Boulevard there, is all that was all donated over a century ago by John D. Rockefeller, the richest man of all time. That was Rockefeller Park. Uh, he donated all that land all the way up to Lake Erie. So that's a very a lot of people don't realize that Rockefeller may have been born in, in New York State, but he he lived and made his millions, billions, uh, whatever, in, in Ohio, in, outside, you know, right? Cleveland, basically. So and, and Cleveland is just a uh, well, all of Ohio. Let me explain something. The problem with Chicago, parts of Wisconsin, Indiana, all this, Iowa, it's flat, whereas Cleveland. Now, I'm not being a stickler here, but the east eastern edge of Cleveland is where the glaciers finally stopped. So you start to get hills. The closer you get to Youngstown, Pennsylvania border, the more hills. Once you get into Pennsylvania with the Allegheny Mountains, it's stunning. Okay? That's where my – that area outside of Pittsburgh is where my dad was from and, you know, family and shit coal miners um so when you get to the pennsylvania west uh, west virginia border over there oh man it's it's really marvelous and so ohio or east northeast ohio which is the cleveland area has that's where the glaciers predominantly stop that east coast uh, uh swoop of the glaciers so yeah it's really nice uh and even though cleveland is geographically midwest at least my little crew growing up, we, we were more East Coast. All of our rivalries were East Coast. We didn't have a rivalry with Chicago. Everything was New York, Pittsburgh uh, Steelers. Uh, our, we paid our tribute to the mob, the, to the New York mob. It wasn't to the Chicago outfit. Uh, so everything, you know, was always, it seemed, New York or East Coast-based. Um, but, yeah, I... I wouldn't mind going back to Cleveland again. I, as a matter of fact, I really would like to talk Scott because he's got a new car now, a, a beautiful uh, 2015 Buick Enclave. Awesome. That would be a nice car to take to Cleveland, uh, you know. So, yeah. But everybody has their own tastes. Some like the wide open, like Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Utah stuff. I'm not a mountain guy, okay? <laughs> when I went to Boulder to film the Snap No Tap, we looked at the mountains. By day two, I'm like, okay, you know, they haven't changed since two days ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm weird. But I, I'm not a nature guy like you are, Joe. I, I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I'm more urban, and I get the beauty out of the man-made creations. That's what I think is just super extraordinary and i don't mean just skyscrapers everybody i'm talking about how neighborhoods are laid out how they're manicured in landscape like you were talking about liberty of uh, martin luther king boulevard uh man that to me is like breathtaking you know it's funny you mentioned that because i always have trouble reconciling those impulses with myself but i realize i don't have to because i very much dig urban environments like i love 
Yeah, I love just seeing the differences, like the slight differences about how neighborhoods, I mean, North American, especially like East Coast cities, you know, Midwest and East Coast cities, there's a similarity to them that's familiar, but each one has a different little bit of flavor, you know, and I love seeing that. I mean, just like kind of like, you know, in Chicago, the standard house is kind of the brick bungalow and a lot, or, you know, the two flat. And there's just kind of a look and feel to those bricks that is different than anywhere else. Or like in Cleveland, you guys have those two flats where they have like the right. porches on front, you yeah, know, the frame. Right. And so it's, it's, each city is familiar in a way, cause it's an American city, but each one's a little bit different. And it's always kind of fun to explore it and, and see those. And, uh, you know, kind of mentioning the mix of urban and nature, Pittsburgh also, everybody thinks of the Steelers and, you know, all the, us being a steel town. But um, a lot of times that's what I found. That's kind of where I stay over on my way to New Jersey when I drive, because it's just about eight hours there and then another six or so to the, the camp in New Jersey. Uh, that's a beautiful town too, man. They've yeah. got a lot of beautiful nature there. And uh, like I, a lot of times I've, I've been able to get like um, Airbnb, you know, to save some money, I'll, I'll get a room on the South, I think it's called the South Flats or whatever on there, but it's beautiful. It kind of vaguely reminds me. It's this weird Pittsburgh is this hybrid of like it's the main downtown is kind of on like a mini Manhattan Island, like if you will, between the rivers. And then either side of it, because of the hills and the mountains, it starts to look a little bit like what reminds me of the San Francisco area, you know, but it's very beautiful. Lots of trees, very green, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 every time I've gone, I've liked it and just wanted to just go. I wish I had like a week or something just to go and be, you know, have, knew someone who lived there could take me around to the neighborhoods. You know, that was the one advantage of going with you to Cleveland. You could take me around to be like, this is what we need to go see, you know, because when you're a tourist, they kind of, you know, the guides and stuff you'll find online or in the books will kind of take you to what they assume, you know, are, you know, t the tourist traps or kind of the major historic, but it's the character of the neighborhoods that you get a feel for the city. And uh, it's it's extra special when you can travel for something like that and really get to to get a feel for the place. But I, I'm absolutely with you that um, uh, urban environments can be just as exciting to check out. Um, and I, I definitely do it. Uh, Milwaukee's another one. That's just in striking distance of Chicago. And they've got a beautiful lakefront, which is maybe even more green than Chicago's. I think they let a lot of more nature closer to the lakefront where we kind of build our buildings right up to the lakefront. And then we just have some beaches and, and a couple parks. Well, if you but, just want the lake itself, go to Kenosha because there's nobody there. They got the lighthouse. I mean, you could just sit at the lake and, and kind of like be on your own. But getting to Pittsburgh again, if you're driving through Pittsburgh and you have a little bit of time, um, take about the 45 minutes or an hour it would take. I don't know exactly. Uh, go to Cannonsburg. OK, famous home of Perry Como. But Cannonsburg has is beautiful. OK, um, I had a cousin that lived there at one point. Um, and you talk about there's houses built in, in the hills and all of that shit. It's really another little small area. Uh, and then, of course, my, my dad lived the last big portion of his life in Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, which, again, is south of Pittsburgh. But he was from uh, a coal mining town a little bit north or uh, south of Pittsburgh, but I think north northeast of Washington, PA, um, you know, Clarksville, uh, Fredericksburg, Fredericktown, uh, all of that. Yeah. And my grandfather lived in late, my, my, on my dad's side, lived in Latrobe, which was at the time home of Rolling Rock beer, whatever. Um, but yeah, beautiful, 
beautiful areas through there, man. Mariana, that's the area that basically where my dad was uh, raised. And Martin, I'm sure that they have, you know, tell, tell us about the urban, talk, talk urban about Poland, maybe Warsaw or, you know, um, Poznan or wherever you're, you, you know. Yeah, well, uh, I'm also like a city kid, like you, Tony, and I, I grew up in urban environment. But a lot of the towns in Poland uh, have been, frankly, you know, beat to shit by World War II. Ah. So a lot of the, the architecture has been destroyed through war. Um, so on this trip, I've been to Gdańsk, which has been rebuilt. So what you see looking like old town is really not old town anymore. It's, it's been rebuilt. Same with Warsaw. Uh, there's a few towns that are, that were spared uh, because, you know, the Nazis just took over so quickly that there was no real fighting there. Like Krakow is kind of more intact and you'll see a little more, um, like architecturally more interesting stuff. But like where I grew up, you know, it was uh, very much a communist project and very uninteresting, dirty, ugly. So for me, looking at some of the stuff in Chicago, it's, it's very beautiful. And, you know, like um, one of the things that people always um, uh, associate with Chicago is crime. And the crime happens in neighborhoods that are not necessarily historically poor neighborhoods. Like the near West Side, which is where a lot of the gang-related shootings happen, um, you can see it up the highway that there is some really beautiful houses and you can see like older ladies in their house coats with their, with their hats tending to their gardens. They have like nice houses with beautiful facades and, uh, and gardens that are, you know, uh, working class gardens, but they're, they're pretty. And it's just a shame that um, you know, all that stuff is kind of being overshadowed by all the, the violence and the shooting, the gun crimes. Well, let me, let me discuss that briefly because I think today people are, are doing a little bit of revisionist history. Uh, the FBI kept pretty, pretty good crime stats. The 70s were a horrible time, okay? Nothing that's happening now can compare to what it was like in the 70s. Be that as it may, yes, crime is on the rise, and something needs to be done. Uh, my opinion on the matter doesn't matter, <laughs> okay? So, but you still, like you mentioned war, you know, Poland and so much, so much of Europe had to deal with bombings and things uh, that America, knock wood, has never had to, had to deal with. So... People here have to kind of keep everything in perspective. Uh, I don't live in fear of that. I mean, I lived it through, lived through it in, in Cleveland. Never expected to live through it, to be frank with you. Uh, so now, I mean, I'm not going to shelter. I mean, I'm just that type of guy. I'm never. I'm not going to shelter in. Uh, I still believe that Chicago overall is a very safe uh, city. Uh, and when you really look at it, Martin and Joe, there's crime everywhere. It, it's, it's just Chicago is on the news because it's the third largest city in the country. Um, but statistically, it's one of the safer cities. It just doesn't stack up to other communities across the country, uh, down south or wherever it may be. Um, but there's crime in, in the rural areas. There's 
drug abuse, there's, you know, sexual crimes or domestic violence crimes. Some of it doesn't even get reported. So I just believe you have to be prepared for the worst, you know, uh, but go out there, um, go out and, and enjoy, explore. That just, that's just my take on it. Yeah, Chicago crime has been spectacular, which is part of the reason why you hear about it. Like, it's not boring overdose or drug deals gone bad. It's shootings that involve five to six people. And, you know, like, I, I'm going to be avoiding crowds because I'm going to go to fireworks tonight with my kids, but I'm going to go to a suburb because I don't know what the hell's going to happen in the Chicago fireworks. That's a crowd. That's a kind of an explosive situation. And, uh, you know, I don't, maybe if I was by myself, I'd, I'd chance it, but I don't want to, you know, keep an eye on my kids in an environment that's inherently kind of a powder keg. Well, look, you have the school shootings, you have the church shootings, you have the mall shootings, et cetera, et cetera. And many, many times these are happening in small communities, not always exclusively, but, you know, it happens. And, and the bottom line is there's, there's some wackadoo that's behind it, okay? There's a, a gunman or maybe there's more than one. Uh, but when you have a city, the third largest in the country, as Chicago, uh, just sheer numbers – are going to tell you that, okay, there's going to be more crime here. And I think sociologists or criminologists have to get to the root of not just Chicago's crime problem, but crime problems, period. There's always a um, correlating factor. There's, you know, there's, there's similarities in certain things. And I, again, I'm not paid to come up with these answers, nor maybe I couldn't even if I was. But, yeah, changes do have to be made, but changes have to come also from us, from citizens, just like we had to make changes during World War II here. Europeans had to make changes during World War II or, or other wars, uh, like what's going on in Ukraine right now. So um, sometimes we have to be proactive. Now, proactive doesn't mean go out shooting people. That's not where I'm leading with this. But... We have to be open-minded and, and have a rapport going with community leaders or uh, who, whoever is relegated to uh, coming up with solutions. And us citizens have to be an integral part of it. Uh, I don't know if that's happened. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm, honestly, I don't know if it's happened. I, I watched some, um, this was a while ago, but I, I watched some uh, show that talked about the uh, the crime, the way the, the gang violence used to uh, be in, in Compton in uh, L.A., which, you know, it's also a big city, so clearly similar type of problems. And the, the people that used to be involved in trying to keep that down were complaining about how much more difficult it is to police the violence that escalates on the internet and plays out in the street. Then in the 70s or 80s, whatever the Compton situation was really at its worst, where they would really like just hang out on the street and try to squash the beef, as they called it, as it happened. Now with like Facebook, this is all escalating. And then somebody checks in on Facebook somewhere and somebody else drives up and shoots up a party much harder for people to uh, 
keep track of. And consequently, some of the mayoral candidates in Chicago are talking about establishing like a police division that would focus solely on social media as a way of trying to keep crime down. And I don't think it's a bad idea. I mean, it hasn't been tried yet, so maybe it, it, it will fail, but it's an attempt. I don't doubt that. I mean, social, uh, not just social media, but the internet in general has, uh, you know, e- even in nonviolent uh, situations, you know, you got people that just post shit or make shit up. Um, that's just completely bullshit. And, you know, you, there's a sucker born every, every minute. So somebody's going to buy into it and you're correct. And it doesn't just have to be Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or whatever, you know, there's private forums, there's Zoom now where people can, or, you know, Zoom or Zoom, Zoom-like products where, you know, people can get together and plot stuff totally, uh, you know, uncensored and, and uh, unsupervised. And, yeah, yeah, it's uh, – so for crime, to me, there's just going to have to be some answers. Go ahead. Take it easy, Eddie. Oh, okay. Yeah, kind of to your point about the Facebook, another Thanks for everything, dimension I heard about was that, um, <clears throat> you know, obviously there's a lot about reputation and saving face with the gangs and stuff. Um, and it used to be now with Facebook, if someone posts something about someone else, something insulting or something threatening, it's out there for every, all, everybody to see, you know, and it's stuck out there. So you can't let a slight go, you know, so if someone insults you online, you have to respond to that, you know, that, that they're saying that that changed the dynamic where um, before, you know, when things were rumors or someone thought they heard someone say something, it didn't necessarily demand a, a direct response. But now when you do it online, it's concrete and it, and it almost, you know, exacerbates the situation with a lot of the gangs. Well, in my day and age, that was the thing. There used to be an expression, you don't, you know, you don't put your shit out on the street, right? If you had something to say to someone, you, you had to find that person. If you started talking shit about someone, it will get to the to the person and you will be confronted. Okay. So this is not a new phenomenon. But yes, what you're saying, because it's on Facebook or whatever on the internet, I should say, yeah, now oh well, they they can't let it pass. And since they publicly insulted you, you have to publicly retaliate. All right. Whereas Back in my day, if somebody privately insulted you, then you privately dealt with it, okay? The whole world didn't have to know. As a matter of fact, you didn't want the whole world to know because that would mean Johnny Law would know. So, yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, and it's hard for us because we're, we're actually using social, social, uh, social media or we're using the Internet to reach a market of people here. And I, I do believe the Internet can have a lot of good, but... I don't think it's turned out the way they initially thought it was going to turn out with the internet. Uh, well, I think people are just naive. I, I don't know. It's kind of funny. Cause I remember, I don't know, it was early two thousands or whatever. They were talking about like the democratization of the news and how now that everybody has a camera phone, we're going to get all this information and just the um, preponderance of information is going to be good for people. But you know, any tool, I don't care if it's a knife or a hammer or the internet can be used to build something constructive or can be used as a weapon. And you got to remember that. So, yeah, I mean, social media is not, you know, I'm not, definitely not saying the solution is to get rid of social media or to lock it down. A, that can't happen. 
but B, just be, you know, also educate people. I mean, you just think about all the misinformation out there and how easy it is to deceive people and how, you know, it's such a powerful tool for foreign governments to come and mess directly with people. I mean, they can't, they, it's a super strong propaganda tool. You know, literally people around the world are, are you know, governments, you know, from inside their borders can reach out to people's phones, you know, anywhere in the world now and give them whatever message they want to give them. So it's, it's very powerful for both good and evil. And I think it's, um, I mean, in that realm, as far as the misinformation, it's just going to, we're going to have to educate our people about how to be smart about what you're looking at and reading and well, try not to be manipulated. The thing is with any subject, anything ever, too much information too quickly. It's, it's like drowning. It's like too much water too quickly. You're going to, it's going to kill you. So people don't, you know, the, that's the problem with the internet. It's you can get all this information, even if it was 100% accurate, which it really isn't. But you can't retain, you can't absorb, you can't think, you know, and, and, and make, make a concrete example um, out of it because it's just, it just keeps coming at you. It's like a barrage. Uh, and I think people have to be trained, I really do, to learn to take it in real tiny bite-sized stuff and, uh, you know, as opposed to just getting, like, even like one of the years ago, when, when I would do seminars back in the 90s, I wanted to show everybody all the great techniques that, you know, we have to offer that, you know, others didn't have. And in, in a way, it was too much information. People are like, man, great seminar, but man, I don't remember half the shit. It was too much. So you have to slow it down and, and not, you know, just, you know, sh- shoot things out from all angles, so to speak. So, yeah, I think that's the issue with the... Um, with the internet uh, and, 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 you know, especially, and I tell people who are training with me or interested in training, look, quit looking at all these damn YouTube videos. Okay. Because you're just going to get inundated with shit and it, it's, it's going to be, you, you know, you're not going to get that clarity. <clears throat> so, you know, that, that's just, that's just the way it is. Hey, Martin. Uh, so, what towns were you in in Poland? I think you mentioned them. Because the other thing I was curious about is, do we know what town Radvan came from? I okay. thought it was Poznan. Uh, I've never really been to Poznan. I've been to Gdańsk uh, on this trip, um, which, like I said, was one of those casualties of World War II and, and Warsaw. Uh, but some of these guys came from really small towns. I, I don't yeah. know. Like, if Radvan came from Poznan, that, that's a big town. Well, he may but have come I, from I, a I, suburb. Is what I mean. Yeah, or some village near Poznan. Because yeah. I, I looked up uh, Zabisco, and he came from some little nothing town. Like, it, it's not even worth visiting because I'm sure whatever his, you know, legacy was in that town, is it was negligible. So, uh, you know, it, it's not like um, these people were fetid in any way because it's kind of like retroactive. Like, maybe, maybe there is now a body of work that should be... Um, you know, uh, turned into like a museum somewhere, but that wouldn't go in the, where they were born because they did not much there. You know, their body of work was accumulated somewhere else. I'm sure, like, I think I, Tony mentioned this before, like, Radvan was well-known in Cleveland. He's probably completely unknown in his hometown. Well, there was the Chicago Polish Museum here. And when, when my old accordion teacher, Ronnie Moon, moved to Chicago for a while when I helped him move out here, 
because he knew Rod Vaughn. We went to the, or he called the museum or we went to the museum. I don't remember. I think he called them. They never heard of Rod Vaughn. Uh, hell, half the, half of Cleveland didn't know Rod Vaughn. It was just that section, you know, of Cleveland that knew him. Uh, and, that, you know, there was other strong men. There was a guy named Peter Zebich, who I think was a Serbo Crow from uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, but he used to come through Cleveland with his liniments, you know, snake oil salesman, handlebar mustache. He predated um, Stanley Rodvon, but there was that section of East Side Cleveland, like basically, you know, where I learned to box and all that, I showed Joe, the Slovenian section, in essence, the Slovenian, Slovenian Croatian. They thought, you know, Zebic was the strongest man, and the Polish thought Rodvon was the strongest man of all time. Uh, and there was another strong man even before that in Cleveland from the late 1800s. I do not recall his name. I, at one point, I was at some secondhand book place. This was before, they, it was like a cash, like a fair, Renaissance kind of fair. They had this big poster and shit. Well, I had run out of money. I bought all these books. I couldn't buy the poster of this Cleveland strong man. I wish I had that. Um, and then you had Tom Jenkins, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, catch wrestlers ever from Cleveland, you know, just outside of Cleveland. The one I, you know, was a steel mill worker. Nobody in Cleveland's heard of Tom Jenkins. He ended up being a coach at West Point for 30 years or whatever, wrestling coach. So, yeah, I agree with Martin that um, what's popular to us, we're still a small little section of the world. You know, we're like a fringe. So, yeah, you're not going to see much. Um, I think they got a little statue or a plaque in Nina, Wisconsin, I believe somebody told me. I think Craig Goss told me uh, of Ed Strangler Lewis because he was from up there, you know, near the near somewhere near the Wisconsin Rapids. But uh, you know, Ed Strangler Lewis was more popular than Zabisco, more popular than Rod Vaughn because you know he was actually on television and he was champion of the world, you know, after Zabisco um, and was 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 a much superior wrestler than Zabisco. So, uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm just wondering if, you know, is Downers Grove, is Lombard going to put up a statue of you, Joe? I'm definitely Maybe New Jersey will. Yeah. For all, oh, for all your is, New Jersey exploits. This guy bashed Philadelphia on the podcast a couple, three years ago. Like now, he, see, this goes back to disinformation. This is exactly, thank you for making my point about don't trust everything you hear on the internet. Yeah. I actually like Philadelphia quite a bit. Now, I didn't say great things about Camden on the other side of the, the bridge there. Um, I had to make uh, quick my escape from there. But um, <laughs> Philadelphia, I would go back in a heartbeat. I, I like that town quite a bit. Uh, I had Actually, I went with Dwayne and my buddy Will. So I've been back there multiple times. Now, do I think that the Philadelphia cheesesteak is inferior to the Chicago Italian beef? Yes, I do. But it doesn't mean I don't like it. I mean, maybe I won't put cheese whiz on it like they some reason do. I, I can't explain that. But great town. I loved it. Both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. I had a great time in both of those. And I'd go back. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's another town where I just wish I could spend, you know, at least a couple of weeks exploring all the neighborhoods and stuff. But I've had great times at, at both places. Yeah, it's the heartland of, you know, it really, it really is because I know people like to say, such and such farming community is the heartland, but it really isn't. I mean, everything sprung from the major cities in throughout history. Martin and I were talking about this. You back to the Egyptian times and before that, it was major epicenters, Rome, 
Warsaw, whatever. Um, and then things satellite out from there. But yeah, Philadelphia, New York, Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, you know, other towns. I don't want to leave any other, you know, St. Louis, you name it. There's just been so much. Um, and even down south, you know, Atlanta, um, <clears throat> and I don't know, you know, uh, there, there's just, there's a lot to see. And you didn't get a chance to see everything I wanted you to see in Cleveland. I knew you wouldn't go, you weren't going to because we only had three days or whatever. So you can't, can't do that here. Like even Scott, Scott doesn't get it that he wants to go here, there, there, there in Chicago. You can't do that all in one day. Okay. You, you've got to spend, you know, a week or two and get up at six in the morning and hit the road, you know, and not get back till 11 o'clock at night or midnight. You know, it's, there's so much to see. One other, you know, example that I have is, uh, and I think this goes back to the point where, like, all these great achievements can't be achieved, like, in a vacuum. You can't be just one person growing up in a nothing town, coming up with some great idea that then the world's going to adopt. And, and the point that I wanted to uh, illustrate this with was um, Thomas Edison. There is, his hometown is Milan, Ohio, which I've been to. It's a tiny little town. There's not much to it. It's near Cleveland, I suppose. Yeah. And... They, you know, they have like a little bit of uh, uh, his house where he was born. There's like a little bench you can sit on. But he did most of his work in New Jersey. I mean, yeah. that's kind of where, where he, he was. And he wasn't alone. There was other guys uh, that were involved with him. In fact, one of his um, like assistants was like a black dude who like commercialized all his um, inventions. And that guy doesn't get enough credit because he stuck with Edison for a very long time and has a ton of patents because like, the stuff that Edison invented wasn't really like commercially usable. You needed to put it through another set of um, eyes and another set of attempts to really commercialize it. And you couldn't do that all in Milan, Ohio. It's just not enough of a town to support all those ideas that had to come together. Well, no, you're correct. And, and this, this happens to be the case with pretty much everything. Um, you know, even martial arts, you know, and nobody created all of this stuff. They picked from other people and it was a conglomeration of, of efforts. And there's also, um, you know, independent discoveries, you know, people think they've come up with something. They genuinely do. They may be a hundred percent sincere. They think I just invented something. Well, not really because somebody on the other side of the country already did that. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's really it, it's fascinating that 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 theory. Well, it's really not a theory; it's an absolute it's an absolute fact. But people get so invested in their belief systems, um, you know, that they, they just kind of shut down to they close their mind and they're not open to other uh, you know possibilities. I've seen moves like martial art, you know, Brazilian jiu jitsu moves. Are like, well, I've done that when I was fifteen years old. Okay. That's not a jujitsu move. Joe Blow from, you know, uh, you know, whatever gym did not invent that move. Okay. It, it's, it's been around. So, you know, that kind of shit. Uh, nothing new. But yeah, you, you definitely, I mean, I, I remember I read uh, Steve Martin's autobiography and one of the things he said, or his advice to comedians was you have to go to where the action is. You know, you could be the funniest person in the world, but if you stay in your little neck of the woods, you may never be discovered. You got to go to the big towns, you know, you got to go to New York or LA or whatever to get discovered. 
And that kind of goes to your point about Radvan. I mean, here's this world-class talent who was only known locally there, you know? And even though it was in a big town like Cleveland, it wasn't enough to give, you know, it to, to, for a lot of these people, you may have great ideas or great skills, but sometimes to get that out to the world, you've got to go to where people Music are too. Every town, large town, even some smaller towns have tremendous musicians that never, they don't want to leave the town for whatever reason. You know, like Jerry Sigler, greatest jazz accordionist I ever heard. Nobody knows him. Um, Buddy Fight, who was a phenomenal guitarist. Uh, uh, um, uh, whoa, what's his name? Boy, see my boy. When we get on these subjects and I, I can't think of names real quick. Uh, Johnny Costa. Okay. The, as good as Oscar Peterson and Errol Garner are up, uh, Art Tatum, he's right there. He never wanted to leave Pittsburgh. He made his name with with Mr. Rogers. He was a pianist behind Mr. Rogers, but no that shit. was filmed in Pittsburgh. Huh. He didn't want to travel. He didn't want to leave town. He was, you know, a matter of fact, Art Tatum, the legend, the guy used to call Johnny Costa the white Art Tatum. I mean, the guy had technique. He was just amazing. Never left town. Um, there was an accordionist that used to play with him as well, Dominic Tremarchi. Nobody heard of him. Matter of fact, Johnny Costa played the accordion. Um, I never heard it, but I knew that he did. Yeah, so artists, same thing, painters. And, you know, there's probably so many worldwide that no one will ever know of that, that have every bit of, you know, ability. They can copy any, any known artist in the world. Uh, but, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a story that's old as, as, as the ages. Now, imagine throughout history some small town in the middle of Denmark who may have created, there may have been a person that lived there, male or female, that was just the greatest person in the world. Who knows? But lost to history, man. Lost to antiquity. I want to take a little turn, and I'll put you on the spot. And you maybe don't have to answer this today, but maybe it's like a, a research project for you, Tony. Maybe not off the top of your head, but I'm sure there's not one source, but I'm always kind of impressed when talking to you. You start name-dropping all these great old-time wrestlers was there like a couple particular books that you really you know or was it just randomly that you picked up over your various study and, and research to find all these names I mean you really had a handle on what I would call you know uh kind of the, the last era of catch wrestling and all those names out there I used to remember I used to have all the, all that st- records and all of that uh memorized my my, my memory's shot so um well, the first the book that first got me started on strength, really, and it covered wrestling as well, was uh, Super Athletes by David Willoughby. Okay, that that's what got me. But then talking to Stanley Rodvon, because he like he knew Zabisco, Vladik and Stanley Zabisco, um, and others he knew uh, all the old timers and shit. So I got some firsthand knowledge from him. And uh, but as far as books. Not really. I mean, I've read books, don't get me wrong, but there really hasn't been anything, at least when I was growing up, there was nothing written that I was aware of. But I will tell you, um, there were some very gifted wrestlers that that are uh, sadly pretty much forgotten. And that's, you know, and that's a shame. Not all of them were like submission giants. Um, but like there was Henry Wittenberg. Okay. He was probably one of the greatest wrestlers this country ever produced. 
he ended up becoming a New York City cop for years, an Olympian champion and all that, national champion. But when you're going to talk about pound for pound, the greatest wrestler of all time, um, I'm going to vote for Robin Reed. Uh, not only did he, he also was a professional wrestler, small, like 130 some pounder, beat everybody officially and unofficially. I'm talking even up to heavyweights. Okay. He was an Olympic gold medalist, uh, absolute monster of a wrestler lost to history. Most people never heard of him, but you know, pound for pound, you know, he was, he was, he was immensely talented. Uh, and I, you know, uh, there's just, you know, I, I hate to start naming names because then when you don't name somebody else, they'll be like, well, what does he think of that guy? But you, you're getting me off the top of my head. These were just guys that were, you know, phenomenal. Uh, Mott, you know, another one who I know he had some heat with, with Fez, but I think much of that stemmed from, the business side of it. Okay. Cause he became a promoter, but the professional wrestling you see nowadays wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for Toots Matt. Uh, and he was, he knew submissions, Ray Steele, Pete Sauer, national champ, new submissions. Uh, they, it goes, it goes on and on, but it, it's just a shame that so many are lost to antiquity. Okay. So to speak. Uh, and I know stories that are so controversial they're true stories but they would bust people's uh, uh, dreams and therefore people can't have their dreams busted so they're going to go on the attack but there were a lot of wrestlers famous wrestlers that weren't really very good or were workers completely workers that got put over as the legit people um and that's that's something. I mean, that's, and I'm talking way back, turn of the 19th century and shit like that. Uh, even, even in the late 1800s, same thing, you know, but it, 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 let, let the people believe what they want. Cause it really doesn't affect us. You know, I, I know if, if I'm looking for, I used to tell people when they were asking me about these old time wrestling books, buy them for historical purposes only. Don't think you're going to find a move in there. That's going to revolutionize the world. You won't. Okay, just buy them for historical purposes. Like if you were buying a book from the 1700s that's written in old English, just respect it for its historical place and time. You're not going to walk around talking like that. And some of the words have changed their meaning. So it's not going to be a functional thing. And, and I, so that, that's how I tell people to approach a lot of history. Uh, just look at it, not so much for functionality, but for, uh, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like, not reminiscing. I can't think of the like word. An nostalgic. Nostalgic, you know. Well, it gives you kind of an, a glimpse into the evolution of things, too. See where things were at. But you're right. So many things are changed when they're written down. You know, you don't get the true story or whatever. Um, well, we're better athletes today. There's just no, I mean, not to say that those guys were chumps. But, you know, there, there's just no, there's just, there's literally no comparing the two. And we have an advantage because medicine has improved tremendously. So injuries in 1920 that would have ended your career are now like sidelining you for like two months. 
you know, then you're back in action. So we, we, we have benefits today that, you know, people, you know, a hundred years ago, just, just didn't have. Yeah. And you just get the benefit of learning from the previous generation. You know, every generation is standing on the previous generation's accomplishments and you can learn from them. So there's always an, you're always, you know, the direction of human accomplishment is always going to be, you know, uh, but you're right. So, uh, so it's kind of an unfair comparison. Well, you know, like music. Okay. Now I, you know, I'm a jazz guy and all that, but I'm, I'm a musician. You know, just, I like all, you know, I like a lot of variety of music, but you know, if I'm going to listen to, let's say 1920 Bix Biderbeck or, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong or, you know, guys of that, that era, uh, I can't do that all day and all night, okay? Because there, you know, we've we've surpassed them, both from a technical standpoint and a creative standpoint. But they that only happened because of those guys, okay? And they learned their tricks and tips from a generation beforehand too, which all stemmed ultimately from, in this country, classical music, and and some influence of folk music when you had the immigrants coming over with with from wherever they were with their native folk music uh and even in poland you have chopin who wrote polkas and italy made polkas and recorded or uh, wrote polkas in in mazurkas and slovenia and croatia and all that the tamboritsians and all of it is just you know and it becomes an amalgamation, and somewhere along the way, somebody just, well, I'm going to change a little thing here, you know. Uh, and if you look further back, and even classics, there's some improvising in classical music. Of course, it's certainly not like the jazz guys, but, uh, and then you have your late 1800s, early 1900 uh, composers, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov, or... Uh, some others like that, um, that just pushed the envelope so much away from traditional classical oriented pieces, such as Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Haydn, to what became the outer limits of classical to where the jazz guys started picking it up. And some of the more astute jazz, clinically trained jazz musicians, such as a buddy DeFranco, uh, and others, Red Rodney, Tommy Gamina, they started studying with these classical guys, um, Stostakovich, one of them, and they started implementing those theories into jazz and started to get way out there, really creative shit, polytones, everything. I'm getting technical here, but all of it stemmed from something outside of their element. So they didn't go to previous jazz musicians alone. And that's how fighting has to be. You can't just, sometimes you got to get out of the box, get out of that circle, start going to different styles or different cultures, or just sometimes watch a football game and see how, how the football player got that guy to the ground in a tackle, you know, because in a real life fight, oh, I could, hey, I remember, you know, such and such did this. So get out of the wrestling element once in a blue moon and, and just see how the football player may have done it. I mean, I'm using that as an example, but that's how you got to start thinking. 
that's how musicians uh, started to think too. So you got any uh, plans for the week, Tony? Doing some? Uh, Scott's supposed to come over, you know, the swimmer, and we're going to watch the fireworks show today, tonight. And there's a parade in an, uh, one, like in about another hour and 45 minutes. So I don't know if that police officer and his wife that I met at the seminar, I don't know if they're, because they live on the other side of the lake. Hmm. I don't know if they're coming to my house. They were supposed to come over tonight to watch the fireworks, but uh, they got tickets to the ZZ Top concert tonight. So they're going to ZZ Top. So I don't know if they're coming over or not, but I'm just going to, me, I'm just staying home unless I, I run to go get a sandwich or something. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to chill out. What about you two guys? Well, you know, the only thing I do basically is after this podcast is over, I, just, I shut everything down and then I just go sit in my room and wait for the next podcast. So basically I just get enough food stored up so I can make sure I can survive to the next time I can record with you, Tony. In front of a mirror, though. You're in the front of a mirror at all times, right? No, the lights are off completely. I mean, it is mirrored completely. Yeah, yeah. of course. That's but awesome. no, I just sit, sit in the dark and wait for this podcast to happen. So that's the business as usual, I guess. So you're like a mushroom in essence. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm one of the poisonous kinds or not, but. Well, what about Martin? What are you, what are you going to do, Martin? Uh, I'm uh, going to go to like a fireworks display in some suburbs because I got kids and I pretty much work for my kids. <laughs> With no <laughs> pay, by the way, and no benefits. Mar- Martin had his hour, and, almost hour and a half of his personal Zoom training today before we filmed the Zoom meeting. I put him through a good workout, so he's fit. So he's going to go for a 12, 15-mile bike ride. Yeah, you're you're in good shape. Yeah, that Zoom session is my fun for the weekend, Tony. That's basically <laughs> all I get. And then it's, it's basically kind of like Joe being a mushroom and, and my kids. <laughs> well, I want to wish everybody a happy fourth. And for those of you who aren't in this country, just enjoy the weather or the weekend. And, you know, thanks, everybody, for tuning into this podcast. And, hey, we'll see you next week. I don't know. I guess Joe's not going to be here, but I'll do a podcast with Martin or somebody. If I have to do it alone, I'll, I'll do it alone. But, everybody, thanks again. Joe? Happy Fourth, everybody. See you all later. Bye-bye. <laughs>